What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Bring in show music, please. Hi, I'm CNBC producer Katie Kramer. Today on Squawk Pod. Ford teaming up with Tesla, CEO Jim Farley on the freshly paved road to an electric future. There'll be no issues. It'll be super simple. This is not just for the future. It's for all the people already bought our vehicles. Americans' personal information stored on a server in China. The latest New York Times investigation into TikTok and data with reporter Sapna Maheshwari. I think what that reflects is just what a sprawling enterprise this is and this effort to separate TikTok and all of its U.S. data from ByteDance and Chinese organization. And a debt deal may be getting close, closer. CNBC's Courtney Reagan says sticky fingers are squeezing retailers. It's situation dependent, whether it's a category, a retailer, or a geography. Plus, Andrew Ross Sorkin back after a busy week. If you could get out of a conversation that didn't include ChatGPT, you were lucky. It's Friday, May 26th. Squawk Pod begins right now. Stand Becky by in three, two, one. Cue it, please. Good morning. Welcome to Squawk Box right here on CNBC. I was going to say welcome back because this is the show that never ends. We are live from the NASDAQ market site in Times Square. I'm Becky Quick along with Andrew Ross Sorkin. Joe's off today. Andrew, welcome back. It's nice to see you. I was out in Cali at the uh, CNBC inaugural CEO Summit. It sounds like a lot of fun. Hanging out with lots of CEOs (laughs) talking about uh, all sorts of things. Actually, hopefully it'll, uh, we'll we'll be talking about some of those things that we talked about there uh, this morning. Of course, the debt ceiling at the top of uh, at the top of that list. That's the top concern you heard from out there. I mean, that's the top concern if you're at a cocktail party and people are chit-chatting about what's going on in the news. That I think the bigger thing was probably just a sense it, it was actually interesting, a, a sense of not just uncertainty which everybody has, but a sense of what happens on the other side meaning do you get to some even if you get out of this whatever this is with the Fed and everything else are you in some kind of stagnation period for some kind of very lengthy time? I think that was something I heard a that lot. That makes sense. A lot about right. over time. What so. about the credit crunch? And then just AI, chat GPT, you know. Right. If you could get out of a conversation that didn't include chat GPT, you were lucky. <laughs> that sounds like fun. Anyway, we are glad to have you back. Nice Uh, to see you. Why don't we take a look? I heard you had a big week. I heard all about you know, heard, watched. We had, uh, we did. We had a. It was an unusual crowd, but it was lots of fun. We had, um, you know, good conversations here too. So good, good, good. It's good to have you back. Nice to see you. Look, there, there is no agreement. All right. We know where our differences lie. We've worked throughout the day and we'll continue to work to try to be able to solve the problem. But there is no agreement. We're going to go to D.C. right now to talk more about this. The latest on the debt ceiling negotiations, the one and only Kayla Tausche working the phones and everybody in Washington. Ms. Tausche, good morning. 
Good morning, Andrew. It has been nonstop down here. Negotiators, we can say, are moving closer to a deal to cap federal spending for two years in exchange for lifting the debt ceiling. But House Speaker Kevin McCarthy notes no deal has been reached. And some Republicans, Republican aides have suggested big items are still outstanding. We should note the budget cuts would spare the Pentagon and veterans, according to a person briefed on the talks. That's making the challenge that much greater to reach a certain level of desired cuts for non-defense spending. To get more savings, negotiators are now discussing dialing back a portion of the $80 billion allocated to the IRS under the Inflation Reduction Act to ramp up tax enforcement. Two officials called it a live issue and one that would help preserve some social programs that are important to Democrats that would otherwise be on the chopping block. And while no deal has been reached yet, it would need to be clinched by later today. The bill would then be written posted perhaps by tomorrow. Speaker McCarthy has promised his members three days to read the bill once it's fully written. The House and the Senate could then vote after Memorial Day just before the deadline. So you can see we are taking this right down to the wire, and that is even as uh, some of those big issues are still outstanding, including work requirements and permitting reform, which have been on the table since the beginning but have not uh, reached their final state in these negotiations. Andrew, we will see what we get throughout the day today and whether we hear from Spe Speaker McCarthy and the president on this progress. From a very just practical perspective, given what you know about where the negotiation stands, if you were to handicap it, do you think it actually happens today? Does it get pushed through the weekend? Do we get pushed into sometime next week and the, and the markets, if you will, force the issue in a way that they haven't yet? I think it can get done if, you know, there is some movement from some further movement from the established positions throughout this process. And then if both sides can swallow the very bitter pill of messaging this to their members. One of the reasons why you can sort of sense that we're getting close to a deal is that there's anger on both sides. Democrats yesterday um, were up in arms about some of the items that were reportedly being cut, some of the costs that were uh, reported to be shaved off the budget. And then Republicans were up in arms about some of the items that they had brought to the table and learning that those were out of contention in the negotiations and warning that there there would not be enough Republican votes for a deal unless more of those things were added back in. Well, it's going to be up to the president and uh, the top Democrat in the House, Hakeem Jeffries, as well as Senator Schumer, who's been largely absent from the last couple of weeks of talks as well as um, Speaker McCarthy to message what's actually in this and describe to their members why it is a win and why they should vote for it. I think even once you get a deal in principle, that's going to be a really tough sell after the fact. Kayla, that was going to be my question is how convinced are we that they can actually get this passed? Usually, as you mentioned, when you hear anger on both sides of the aisle on the extremes of the parties, that, that does signal that there's something in the middle that people can solidify around. But it, does anybody have any, is there like an absolute confidence that yes, whatever they determine that the, if those, if the president and the speaker can actually come up with a deal, it's something that will be swallowed by the caucus? That is the belief, Becky, at this stage. The question is just to what extent can you get, um, you know, as many as 100 Democrats to vote for this? Can you get as many Republicans as you need while losing potentially the entire Freedom Caucus um, in this effort. I mean, the, the whip count has been ongoing alongside these negotiations. Um, but obviously, as they've been changing in real time, some of those votes have been changing in real time. And one of the things that both sides have been grappling with is you take one item off the table and you lose a certain number of votes. And so they're really having to contend with that as well as 
a forthcoming score from the Congressional Budget Office. I mentioned the discussion over the IRS um, funding. You know, that is something that Previously, the CBO had said would pay for itself $80 billion in spending, roughly $120 billion it estimated in revenue. And there's going to be a situation where even if you take, say, $20 billion of that spending off the table, that means that you're going to get less revenue. Can you message the fact that, you know, that that is not deficit, that's not helpful to the deficit when you're when you're actually removing that spending? Um, and what the CBO comes out with is, is going to be really instructive in, in how they message it, too. Kayla Tausche, uh, who's on this story, and uh, unfortunately, while others are going on vacation this weekend, I imagine you are not, so good luck, and I hope we're going to be talking to you a lot, and I hope actually that gets done. So thanks. America's retailers say they are struggling to control lost revenue and lost inventory due to theft. It is a funny term, shrink, and it's been impacting many of the big box names, Target, Home Depot, even drugstores. CNBC's retail reporter Courtney Reagan joined Becky and Andrew to dig into it more. A number of retail companies updating guidance this week and talking shrinkage. That's the topic of the morning. We got to get some. Can, can we get um, the George? I was going to say, I mean, can it's, we, it's can so we get that hard. video or is that a fair use thing? I was What's, in the water. Yeah. OK. Anyway. Retail results, a mixed shopping bag really to start the year with lots of uncertainty really for the rest of 2023. So let's start with the positives. Many retailers like Gap Inc. and Kohl's put up better than expected earnings with margins holding up thanks to lower freight costs and largely avoiding heavy discounting. Refinitiv actually says it's the lowest level we've seen in years for discounting. Inventory positions improved. Retailers, including Bath and Body Works, controlled costs pretty well. Stores continue to see a resurgence, with more retailers reporting stronger in-store performance than digital sales. Best Buy, an example there. LVMH, Ralph Lauren, among those reporting strong sales in Asia, while the U.S. was weaker. Shoppers are still buying consumable products like household essentials, food and cosmetics, but holding off on discretionary purchases like apparel, home goods, electronics and toys. Those are trends cited by Walmart, Costco and Dollar Tree. Increasing shrink in many cases from organized retail crime is becoming a bigger issue. Target, Dollar Tree, Foot Locker and Ulta are just among those going into detail on the conference calls about how these losses are becoming more significant. Even with many reporting stronger first quarter earnings, retailers, though, largely reluctant to increase full year guidance, instead reaffirming prior forecast. Words and phrases like inflationary pressure. Refinitiv says inflationary was mentioned 117 or 18 times, and uncertainty and cautious are frequently repeated on this quarter's conference calls. Now, the debt ceiling deadline, of course, approaching just adds another possible shake to consumer confidence. If something doesn't get done there, I can't imagine it makes people feel good about where they are financially. This goes exactly to what we heard at the CEO summit, though. Mm. There's just the, the anxiety about what happens next. Right, exactly. Nobody knows, right? There's so many different factors right. at play. And I think we were surprised pleasantly in some ways by the retail resurgence during the pandemic and truly as we were coming out of that right. to see people going back and buying the goods that they were buying and in the volume at which they were doing it. The fact that discounting is really low, I think, is very interesting, too, because we were so addicted to discounts and coupons. Well, they've gotten better with inventory management. Absolutely. So many of them got stuck with lots of inventory yep. after we came back out of the pandemic mm-hmm. and people stopped buying stuff and started doing things mm-hmm. and spending money on services. They've gotten much better with their inventory, and that, that, that will help with some of it. Too. That's true. RH, though, interesting, last night did talk about how they may have to increase some discounting to move some of 
their goods and obviously I mean, with they're expensive this, brand very <laughs> very and with the softness that we've seen in discretionary goods i would imagine we're going to see some of that start to tick up right around now i would imagine so it may not have been captured of course and with the port the court that was just reported can i ask a, a shrinkage question though about let's just talk stolen goods because it's yeah. almost become this like bizarrely political issue that's and so true. When I talk about it on TV, when you talk about it on political. TV, people go crazy. Yeah. But, I, but I think there's a reason for the political. No, I, and so what's so interesting is you have one side. Causes. You have one side saying that there's absolutely terrible shrinkage. There's stolen goods. You go online, you see these videos on on TikTok and Twitter of of, of robbers literally brazenly doing things that are Ripping just everything off beyond the beyond Apple you know and and store. and so you see that that's on one side. Right. And then on the other side, you have you have a, a political class that says that somehow either this isn't happening with, and they're seeing it with their own eyes, or they're saying the data is not really there, and the retailers aren't really they're, they're sort of saying this, but is it really real, the, or the what is it? The retailers I talk to will tell you absolutely. No, I know that, but I'm trying to understand. But weakened the, and. But then I'm trying to understand the data piece of it because you do have, and I think we had somebody on our air this week. Actually, you had somebody on the air this week who was saying, unfortunately, there isn't. I don't know if it was on Squawk or maybe it was a little bit later in the day, talking about how. Unfortunately, there isn't actual data uh, across the board that shows it. Right. What do you think is really happening? I mean, I think it's, so, it's situation dependent, whether it's a category, a retailer, or a geography. I think it is true that in areas where the felony thresholds have been increased, that you see people steal more or steal right up to the point right. of that threshold because they're very well aware of it and the enforcement is lower. For whatever reason, right. and maybe that's because they've got bigger things to worry about. I don't know. That that's like right. that's part of that political discussion. But then you've got a Best Buy yesterday, and I asked CEO Corey Berry about shrinkage there because it's electronics. And during and sort of coming out of the pandemic, I, I want to say it was 2021, they were having these brazen robberies and thefts, and they were getting very dangerous and very aggressive. But she actually said yesterday that it's really more historical. It's something they didn't need to call out now. It's not higher than it was. But also as an right. electronics retailer, they have carry always screen TV. Yes, and they've right. always had to be a little bit more cognizant. So right. I think again, then it's categories. Maybe specific. they lock up the smaller stuff, but nobody's walking out with a big. Right, they've TV. got they they have Too one heavy. one entrance, one exit. They have the you know security personnel right there. Although in a lot of cases, the retailers are telling the security security, the step security back. personnel. Don't, yeah, don't right. don't get involved. There was a Home Depot employee, unfortunately, killed in April in California for trying to get involved with a shoplifting incident. So I, I think the threat is really real. I totally understand what you're saying. It has I mean, become a political issue, and I don't know the, the full answer. We had that, that New York Democratic state representative who came on and argued with us that, no, there aren't people leaving New York, and wealthy people aren't leaving New York. If you look at the figures, the people right. who are coming in right. make a no, lot less money than the people no, who are left. No, that's just get what you're what, going to have a tax. No, that was just gaslighting. Issue. But I yeah. think the question is: is that is it gaslighting when people? You know, you have people who are now using this argument that there isn't right. enough data well, and, and that's to specific point. to it. And I actually am. What I've been surprised about is why the Retail Federation and others haven't actually. If this is as big an issue, and it, by the way, right. it seems to me that it is. At least the NRF from is, what I'm, has made this one of their policy points. Though. Yes, but they haven't. But the but it's a survey, and they it's haven't a little, it's right. A they haven't data, come up with data, and they need to. If if, the, if this is going to be 
a, because it's not just, it's a point that they need for the retail industry, but also yeah. there is a political side to this. For the policymakers. For the policymakers, and for some reason they right. haven't, and, and I don't and know why that is. I don't, I mean, Target is, is to, in my knowledge, the first retailer that has ever quantified it. Right. Truly. I mean, the others talked about it. Dollar Tree spent some time talking about it. Ulta talked about it. They didn't give a dollar figure. They bring it up if it's material. Right. I think at this point for Target, one of the analysts we spoke to said it's probably 3% based yeah. on the numbers he was running and kind of expecting. Walmart, you may have 2% a little north right. of that. It's different at different places. Right. So I agree. That I also, it's also an explanation of what the numbers. mix is. Jan yes. Niffen was pointing out, look, Walmarts may not be quite as high, but that's also because they have a much higher mix of groceries. And nobody walks in and steals groceries because, again, it's too heavy to walk out with. So exactly. it depends on what your mix is that you're offering. you got to resell milk really quick. Yeah. <laughs> right. Exactly. <laughs> and bananas. Thanks, yeah. Court. Thank you. Cheese will be next. Coming up. I think it's a huge thing for Ford. I think it's a huge thing for the country and a massive thing for Tesla. Ford and Tesla's surprise partnership. The rivals teaming up on charging stations. Ford CEO Jim Farley is next on Squawk Pod. We have about 10,000 fast chargers now. This is going to double that. 22,000 fast chargers. It'll be the best network of fast charging in the country. Hi, I'm Ben Rizzuto, Wealth Strategist at Janice Henderson Investors. Is a brighter future possible? At Janice Henderson, we think it is. For 90 years, we've worked to help clients achieve superior financial outcomes and fulfill our purpose of investing in a brighter future together. We know that this means our thinking and our investments are helping to shape millions of futures. At Janice Henderson, we are committed to helping you invest in a brighter future for the next 90 years and beyond. To learn more, go to JaniceHenderson.com. Summer, the best time of year, usually doesn't come with a great deal. Soaring temperatures come with soaring prices. But what if there's another way? With IKEA, your summer plans can last longer than two weeks of vacation and be more affordable. Here, everyone can have lounge chair access, no reservations needed. From affordable outdoor furniture to stylish accessories, we have all the essentials you need to soak up summer in style, no matter the size of your space. Start planning a better summer with IKEA. It's your outdoor dreams inside your budget. You're listening to Squawk Pod. Up and Andrew, Q. Good morning. Welcome back to Squawk Box right here on CNBC. We're live at the NASDAQ market site in Times Square. I'm Andrew Ross Sorkin along with Becky Quick. Joe is off. Ford will partner with Tesla on charging initiatives for its current and future electric vehicles. CEOs Jim Farley and Elon Musk made that announcement during a live audio discussion on Twitter Spaces. Under the agreement, Ford owners will be granted access to more than 12,000 Tesla superchargers across the United States and Canada starting early next year. The Ford's next generation of EVs will include Tesla's charging plug, making Ford the first major automaker to tie into Tesla's network. Check it out. Shares of Ford are up by 1.1%. Shares of Tesla up by about a third of a percent, too. But this is a really key thing. The idea of finding some standards yep. and making sure that you can really tie into a larger infrastructure system, this is what it would take for EVs to really be able to I think take it's a off. huge thing for Ford. I think it's a huge thing for the country and yeah. a massive thing for Tesla. Right. To also, if you get to win to be the standard? If you win to be the standard That's and you start huge. to think about the infrastructure, I mean, it, I more, you know, I know we, there's been people very critical of you know, Twitter and this and that with Elon Musk, but I marvel not just obviously what he's done with the cars, but if you really think through the infrastructure piece of what he's building out, right. by the way, on the ground and in, the, and in space, it's sort of amazing. And the margin on what's going to happen here is going to be amazing for them, too. I mean, that's also, I, maybe that's, you know, people say... Is it charging itself? 
the charging itself. So every time, of, and we'll talk, we'll talk to Jim about it, but every time a Ford um, driver, or any, by the way, a Tesla driver goes and uses, uses one of the superchargers, over time, that, that unto itself is going to be a great business. An and so entirely we, different business that if you were to spin that and, off and just do and it. And this is sort of, you know, we all talk about, and we've had different uh, analysts come on and people who have been short Tesla and this and that over the years, and we always say, is the valuation of Tesla right? Because it doesn't look right if you put it up against an automobile maker. Right. And that's probably right. It doesn't look right against an automobile maker. But if you do start to think about the charging station, some of these other things. Now, some of the other things are a little bit maybe some more in the future. And, yeah, and you, you, have to, you, you have to, I don't want to say suspend disbelief, but you have to, you have to believe. But this, is, but this is part of that story. Well, so we'll the, the only thing I'll say is just I, I've never been really interested in an EV because I don't want the hassle of trying to find a place to charge it. Right. I don't know that this deal itself pushes me over the hump, but this, uh, this deal offers the, offers the incentive Promise. and the idea right. that someday it's not going to be so hard and that I'm not going to have to worry about some of the places I go. Right. Can I get there and not have a problem trying to recharge right. on the way up to Maine or someplace else? I mean, this to me is like the beginning of, yes, create a national infrastructure and a standard so it doesn't matter where I go and I have much more access to things. Interestingly, by the way, there's a number of Tesla owners who seem to be unhappy about all this. Yeah, because they, they don't want more people using their charging stations and making it harder. I, I right, get that. Because they think that there's going to be a line at the... Uh, but you need a longer term vision if you want to think about how this works. It needs to be just as easy as going to a gas station, any gas station, and filling up. It's going to be very interesting to talk to Jim about all of this. In a we are. And he was on Spaces, uh, Twitter Spaces Twitter last Spaces, night yeah. to uh, talk about... Uh, Elon Musk synergies uh, happening yesterday, and that that space is, uh, didn't crash. Didn't, didn't crash. <laughs> I don't think didn't it had crash. quite the same demand. And, in the, and in, with the car metaphor, you don't want it to crash. No. So it's, it's um, different. Farley joins us right now, first on Squawk Box this morning, to talk more about it. And Jim, welcome. This is some pretty big and pretty surprising news. Yeah, it was a big week for us, Becky and Andrew. Um, and this, this announcement, we think, will really help our EV customers have a, a much better experience. You know, they, it, it was surprising just from the perspective that you all are rivals. I don't know if you want to call respectful rivals, frenemies, something along those lines. How, how did this deal come, come about? What happened? We've been actually working on it for a couple of years. You know, we know that charging, we're number two in EV sales in the U.S. behind Tesla. And we know charging is a really big deal for our customers and adoption. And we're now scaling, we're like basically doubling our EV capacity this year. And, and we're going to get to two million in a couple of years. So this is a big deal for, for the company and, and for our customers. And we have about 10,000 fast chargers now. This is going to double that. So 22,000 fast chargers, it'll be the best network of fast charging in the country for any brand, and, and that's why we were interested in it. Uh, we also like their, their, like their locations, we like their charging technology, it works really well as well. So in 25, we're gonna put their plug on our vehicle. Yeah, Jim, I have to say, as a consumer, I think it's great. I, I love the idea of some sort of standardization or moving towards standardization in the industry. No consumer wants to get stuck feeling like, oh, I finally found a charging station, but guess what, I can't use it. And you probably need a lot more of this to, to really beef up adoption of EVs across the country. Um, what I think is interesting about this is, you know, this is, if you went back to the VHS Betamax comparison on all of these things, VHS eventually won out. You are choosing to go with Tesla, which has been uh, riding with the NACS standard. That versus the CCS standard that the Biden administration and most of the U.S. automakers, EV makers, have, have been pushing. 
why, why Tesla? Why this standard? And do you think by you and Tesla teaming up together, you kind of went over and can change what's going to be the standard? It's a great question. So we believe that customers should have, as you said, the option of using either standard. And with adopters, ad adapters and software, we could do that both. But we really like the Tesla standard from a customer standpoint. When you look at how easy it is to plug in, if you drop the core, the, the Tesla system is more robust. Um, the other standard is great, and we'll have adapters for that. But, but we also really love the locations. Like, I remember I was going on vacation with my kids. My kids kept saying, hey, Dad, can we stop there? That's one of those Tesla supercharging. I was like, no, kids, we're going to go over here behind this building. Um, and, you know, so it's, it's, a, it's a bet for our customers, and we want our customers to be able to use both systems actually with adapters. Jim, I Long term, when you think about this, this friends, enemy, frenemy situation, if Tesla becomes that standard, is that good or bad for you? I mean, as you, as you try to evaluate and think through what that means over time. Yeah, we think it's, it's good for us because we're going to have the Ford Pass software. So people don't have to leave the Ford Pass software that they use for charging at their home or, or to control, unlock the vehicle or use the phone as a key. When they go use the Tesla supercharger, they're still using Ford. We were right. very concerned if they had a switch over to use a Tesla software, but that was part of the deal. And it, it was a deal breaker for us for the reason right. you mentioned. And how seamless, there, therefore, will uh, payment and the like be using those, su those superchargers? Yeah, so uh, early next year on the Ford Pass app, we're going to have a bunch of different payment options like we do today. So customers just pay, use their, you know, um, ePay system, whatever they choose. And um, there'll be no, you know, no issues. It'll be super simple. We're going to ship a super, you know, an adapter uh, to everyone who's bought a Ford EV. This is not just for the future. It's for all the people already bought our vehicle. So they'll get adapter from Ford. They go on Ford Pass. They pick the payment option they want. All the billing is the same as it is today. So it's going to be right. super easy. And, and what do you think long term the likelihood is that GM and others will follow suit and, the, and that effectively the, the Tesla superchargers will become the standard? I think there's I think there's a chance. Um, you know, uh, the CCS is, is a great standard, but it was pretty much done by kind of a committee. And, and I, I think GM and others are going to have a big choice to make. Do they right. want to have fast charging for a lot of customers or do they want to stick to their standard and have less charging? So I, I, I don't know, but right. I think, you know, we're number two last year. They were number one. I, I think that's going to be a tough choice for those companies. The, the reason I asked Jim, though, is to some extent, you know, if, if Tesla becomes the, the standard effectively, it means that every other automobile maker will be sending money, almost subsidizing Tesla, and therefore Tesla ostensibly over time should be able to make cars and potentially even sell them at cheaper prices relative to their competitors. And how you sort of think through that, I mean, it's a, there's a, a little bit of a you know, three or 4D chess game going on there. Yeah, you know, I have to say, I, I agree with you, but I have to say, um, we, re we really believe in a free market. Like, there are a lot of independent charging companies whose business is to compete with the supercharger network. And we're going to have adapters to work on both. 
And, and so, you know, the, all the companies will compete for that customer experience. And over time, I think the standard is going to be who takes care of customers the best. I, I know there's strategic impacts over time, but I believe we believe over time charging is going to be ubiquitous. It has to be. Just like all the railroad companies had to get to a standard on the track with, same with, uh, you know, Betamax, VHS. You know, this can't be the reason why someone doesn't buy an EV. Uh, and, and with adapters and software, we really don't have to make a choice right now on what the standard is. But, but I think it's going to play out in the free market. Jim, on that point, just the idea of building up the infrastructure and making sure that you can go anywhere that you would with a gasoline-powered vehicle, how long do you think it takes before those problems are, are really resolved and, and, and you don't run into snags along the way, especially as there is more EV ad adoption and you're going to need more charging stations to handle more people who are doing this, more customers? Becky, I, I would say we, we just need to look at Norway. Norway's been 50% electric. It's a, it's a market with a lot of rural customers and urban customers. It's, it's in the north, so it's really cold, uh, where battery, you know, battery performance isn't as great. And, and if you look at Norway, they pretty much have solved the, the charging problem. I think until retailers start to put fast chargers in, in front of their stores, so as people do grocery shopping, you know, they can char fast charge. We're now making our, our fast charge, like you can get 150 miles in like 10 minutes with our second gen products come out in another couple of years. So I, I think it's gonna take a number of years. What we see on the commercial side is that most people do depot charging. They have a route every day, plumbers, electricians, ambulance, and, and that's kind of pretty easy to solve actually. Uh, yeah. But on the retail side, it's gonna take building standards, a lot of other things that happen in Norway, that could take five to 10 years. Yeah, the only thing I'd point out is Norway is something like 150,000 square miles versus 3.8 million square miles in the United States. So I, I hear your argument on it. It's just we got a lot more space that we got to fill up. That is for sure. No, no doubt about it. Look, most Americans have three, three cars in their household. So the early days, like we're in now, the second inning in a nine inning game, you know, they could pretty much charge at home or work or, you know, that kind of thing. But, but for this to really work for Americans, you know, we have a long, long road ahead of us on infrastructure. And that's why we're investing in Super Duty. We announced a new Super Duty this, uh, this week because we believe in a future where there's a lot of really exciting combustion vehicles and hybrid vehicles for people like Super Duty customers that won't go electric anytime soon. Jim, thank you. Thank you so much, Becky and Andrew. Thank you so much. Next on Squawk Pod, how did Americans' driver's licenses and passports get on China's ByteDance server? The New York Times reporter who investigated TikTok's inner workings joins us. This is probably something of an issue across social media companies, but TikTok, of course, is maybe a little bit less mature in these areas. They don't have quite as much experience operating here. Canva presents unexplained appearances. It was an ordinary workday until... That presentation appeared out of thin air. Also, it's eerily on brand. Wait, did that agenda just write itself? Words appear, making this unexplainable case... Unexplainable? It's Canva's AI tools. I can generate slides and words in seconds. Really? <clears throat> the real mystery is why I'm only learning this now. Canva.com. Designed for work. 
Welcome back to Squawk Pod. Here's Andrew Ross Sorkin. TikTok CEO downplaying China-based workers' access to Americans' user data in congressional testimony in March, testifying that U.S. data is used by engineers in China for business purposes, and the company has rigorous data access protocols, adding that much of the information is already public. But a new investigation from The New York Times appears to contradict that testimony. The Times reporting that sensitive U.S. user data, including driver's licenses, addresses, and potentially illegal explicit material were regularly posted on an internal messaging system called LARC, which is similar to Slack between 2019 and 2022. According to the Times, thousands of employees, including some in China, had access to chat rooms and uh, the data were stored on Chinese servers as of late last year. Join us right now. One of the reporters behind that investigation, Sabna Meshwari, is here from The New York Times. Good morning. Good morning. So what's going on here? Who's telling the truth? Well, from what we've learned, uh, right. we received a trove of documents and, and talked to former and current employees, and we're told that there's a lot of concerns around how this user data was being shared on this messaging system internally. So the messaging system, to me, was a, an interesting sort of element to this, because I think a lot of people think, okay, is the data safe on the system itself, meaning the TikTok, TikTok itself, and they're obviously building this thing called Project Texas, mm-hmm. uh, um, uh, Project Texas, right? That, right. That's going to be supposedly on their own servers. But then I started to, when I realized that there's other elements of sort of how information gets shared, that, that even an internal messaging service might might change that dynamic. Right. And I think what that reflects is, is just what a sprawling enterprise this is and this effort to separate TikTok and all of its U.S. data from uh, the ByteDance and Chinese right. organization. And so it almost seemed like... Um, a loophole to some of these employees, or, or sometimes they described it as lazy or sloppy, where you had this user information being shared, like the way I would perhaps message you, right. you know, at work, um, but in these groups of more than a thousand people um, with quite sensitive stuff. Right. How much better do we think other social media companies are about this, this side of it? Which is to say, it may be safe insofar as it's sitting on some server somewhere you know, at Facebook, but then are there people inside Facebook or other or TikTok or, or, or um, Twitter or other places that have access to things and people share it back and forth for other reasons? I think this is probably uh, something of an issue across social media companies. Um, but from the people we talked to, they said that TikTok, of course, is maybe a little bit less mature in these areas. They don't have quite as much experience operating here. And of course, there's the element that they're storing this information uh, from what we understand in servers in China. And so the other piece yeah, they of the- keep saying they're not. Are they or are they not? Like we the- know that as of late last year, they were storing uh, the LARC data in China. Yeah. We asked TikTok repeatedly to answer, you know, where is it stored now? Is it specifically in China? And they ignored the question. So- okay. We should say, by the way, because CNBC reached out to TikTok. This is a spokesperson who responded to the Times story saying that the data, they, they call them dated documents mm-hmm. um, from the Times story, neither accurately depicts how we handle protected uh, U.S. user data nor the progress we've made under Project Texas. When Project Texas is complete, they say all communications involving protected U.S. user data will occur on a separate platform that is controlled, monitored, and accessible only by uh, U.S., uh, I assume USDs, which are the U.S. Our effort to delete historical U.S. protected data is well underway and expected to be completed this year. The large LARC groups were shut down last year after reviewing internal concerns. We evaluated those concerns and have since implemented several mitigating controls. And you reported a lot of those comments. What were they doing with driver's licenses? 
So How did they even get driver's licenses? A lot of this was through troubleshooting, through accounts having issues, and in the process of that, these users would upload their passports, their driver's licenses, and and make other. You know, so people, reports. this isn't people uploading their. I was thinking to myself because you don't have to upload your driver's license or any of those it. things to get onto TikTok. No. This is this is I'm shut out of my account. I get in touch with customer service, and I to, to prove who I am, I, I send you a shot of my driver's license, and then that driver's license is now sitting on somebody's email that's server. That's the only way you can get back in if you get shut out? Well, I, don't, I don't know, but... I'm just, but that, that seems to be what was happening in this case. And, <laughs> and so the, the idea is that right. that driver's license, because it was, it was sent to some customer service person, mm -hmm. is now living on some server, in this case, the Lark server, and which China, happens to also be in China. With right. the Communist Party right. overlooking and overseeing that. Yeah, and that's the, that's the difference here, is it wasn't sort of submitted as a ticket somewhere. When you think of kind of a customer service process here, it seems in you know the documents we saw that the driver's license was shared. It made its way onto a Lark group, uh, like this kind of internal Slack chat with you know, thousands of people, with employees in China interacting with it. And then it was simply stored there. Um, because it seems the the people we talked to who accessed it were able to access it as of right. last year. We had a we had a guest earlier this week who was defending TikTok and other social media companies, but particularly TikTok against the Montana law, just pointing out that you can't just decide you hate a company. And that's probably true. I think Montana lawmakers know that this is a weak law, and if they had still had the legislature in session, they probably would amend this law to try and make it not just TikTok specific. But they could say any company that is basically overseen by the Chinese Communist Party would have to follow separate rules or not be allowed here. I mean, you don't have to say just TikTok. You don't pick it out because we would just say, okay, any company that's basically owned by the Chinese Party, mm -hmm. the Chinese Communist Party, would, would have to go along with some of these rules. Is that what you think we'll end up seeing as a result of what you've uncovered with things? Um, potentially. I think this is just playing out in, in really unexpected right. ways. And so it's really hard to tell what's going to happen next. Do you believe ultimately that you could separate it? I mean, that's always been the question, meaning that you could separate it and the stuff could literally live on U.S. servers in an audited fashion and people feel good about that? I think that, I mean, that's the challenge, right, for right. TikTok and ByteDance is convincing the U.S. that they can credibly do that. Right, but now that you know what you know, do you, do you, have, do you have a view? I think that our story reflects how complicated and challenging this effort right. is and the many ways uh, in which they're going to have to prove the credibility here. Sapna, right. fascinating reporting. Thanks. Nice to see you. Have a great three-day weekend. Thank you. You too. JP Morgan is developing a chat GPT-like software service that leans on AI to select investment for customers. CNBC has learned that the company applied to trademark a product that's called Index GPT. In that filing, JP Morgan said that the product would tap cloud computing software using artificial intelligence for analyzing and selecting securities that are tailored to customer needs. Other big, big banks have been internally testing AI software for uses like customer service and creating code, but JP Morgan may be the first financial company that's aiming to tailor an investment oriented product to customers. A trademark lawyer tells CNBC that J.P. Morgan must launch the product within about three years of approval to secure that trademark. J.P. Morgan declined to comment on this story, but see, Andrew, right. everywhere. You can't get away from ChatGPT and AI. It's everywhere. Those are the big guys. There's lots of smaller folks, obviously, trying to build this kind of thing already yeah. um, that maybe I think we probably haven't focused on. But like FinTech? In, no, in FinTech land and others that are, you know, I would imagine Wealthfront and all of these other folks are going to have services. I imagine everybody's going to have a service to do it question is actually really whether it's even ready yet. Even, even current ChatGPT is great 
at thinking creatively, but not great in terms of the large language model at sort of truly mission critical stuff yet, because it yeah. doesn't always know exactly well, what. It's not always right. Bingo. Michelle Carissa Cabrera sent me something last night. She was playing around with, like, who is Michelle Carissa? Who is this? Right. Who is this? Doing all of it. She did, who is Becky Quick? Or, or Becky, you know, and, and it came up that I am the um, daughter in law of Dan Quayle, oh. which obviously is not true. But, you know, check it out on yourself and you can see how many things they mess up. Right. So that's, <laughs> you know, it goes to which data pool you're pulling from and all of that. And that's why I think it's still. A little bit of ways, but not that far ways away. I, six months, a year from now, it would be a different place. That's Squawk Pod for today. All human intelligence here, nothing artificial. This is a three-day weekend, but we will have a fresh podcast in your feed on Monday, a bonus episode. Former United Airlines CEO Oscar Munoz tells us his story of leading a major airline during crisis, including his own. Just days into starting as chief executive, he suffered a massive heart attack. Replacing a heart, as you can imagine, is a daunting sort of emotional stage to go through. It didn't change me at all. It's just an organ. I know that, and I can physically tell you that it had no difference. I am who I am. Hope you'll tune in on Monday. Squawk Box is hosted by Joe Kernan, Becky Quick, and Andrew Ross Sorkin, who will all be back next week. You can tune in weekday mornings on CNBC at 6 Eastern to catch them, or follow Squawk Pod wherever you get your podcasts. Have a great long weekend. We are clear. Thanks, guys. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx.